0: A huge disagreement I've had as a teacher sometimes there's like this cognitive dissonance of like I have to teach this it's in the frameworks but I don't agree with this at all and how do I teach this to them in a way that allows them to discern for themselves what they think how do I teach them how to think and not what to think.
1: to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolanik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for tuning in for episode 59. As always, I'm your host, Steve O'Polonek, and I'm so happy to be back. We took a small break, but we have a great episode for you today. Marvin Quinones is on the podcast, and he just drops gems and gems of knowledge about dharma, about death metal, about hip-hop, about being an educator in these unprecedented times, and he shares his story with us and talks about trauma and transformation. So happy to have him on the podcast. Now, before you listen, the quality of the audio on my end when I'm talking is not fantastic. Marvin's is fine. Mine is not because I'm in the middle of moving my office, so I didn't have my setup completely set up yet. So... If you can get past that, this is a fantastic episode to actually listen to, and it's a great message about moving forward and transforming your life and how to think.
0: In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame.
1: Welcome, man. So excited to to finally get to sit down with you and kind of catch up and talk.
0: Thank you. Yeah, likewise. I see all the work you're doing. It's incredible.
1: Uh, Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I've always been a fan of your music and a fan of you as a human being and you know everything of that nature. So it's really cool to sit down. Um, So. I usually start this off by, you know, just having you introduce yourself um, because I think you're probably the best person who knows you. Yeah. And then we'll just kind of go from there and kind of see where the conversation leads. So there's a couple of things I, I would love to talk about uh, with you, but just want to keep it open format and see what's up.
0: Excellent. Um, okay, I'm Marvin Quinonez uh, from Holyoke, Mass. Um, I think first and foremost, I'm definitely a teacher um, a musician and a practitioner of Dharma. Um, and yeah, I think I'm super dedicated to education, helping kids who have social emotional issues, um, and trying to teach in a compassionate way. I think that's yeah, primary focus in life. Uh, I
1: love that because, especially, you know, I don't want to sound trite and say, especially now with COVID. And- so much of that, because I know you were doing this work way before that, but I think what I've seen a lot shift with, you know, academia and and teachers is like this real focus on, you know, before it was certain metrics and now it's like, well, how do we help support kids through this as opposed to just saying, let's hit this certain score and let's get there and let's do all this and stuff. So I'm glad that, you know, that practice has gone on in that practice
0: of being an educator Yeah, it really is nice to see that shift. I think that um, now as we sort of enter this new stage of of COVID and like things sort of kind of coming up and down and up and down, there seems to be a focus again on uh, like academic loss and uh, you know the state kind of really trying to put it on our radar that we need to kind of regain that loss. So um, I hope that that uh, perspective, that you know, the focus being more on their emotional well-being, I, I hope that stays around for a bit because they really need it. Um, I'm just seeing deficits across the board in, in their socialization, the way they they um, kind of you know sit with their emotions at times. It can be really challenging for some kids um, through this time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the focus remains on you know, uh, emotional kind of healing.
1: Yeah, I uh, I, so I want to get to like what what brought you to where you are now with being an educator in the practice of Dharma. But I also want to just talk about what you mentioned for a second, this idea of academic loss, right? Because it's kind of a buzz phrase that's going on or has been going on over the last 18 months, right? I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on what you what you feel about that. Like, what does that mean to you? And then, how do you believe that's manifesting? Or is it even manifesting? In fact, kind of a construct from a systemic point of view.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a systemic aspect to it because um, a lot. Of this is always in reference to how students will perform on uh, you know a state exam, um, which I personally believe is. Uh, you know it, it's it's just a metric it, it can be used to gauge how students are doing um, and I think it, it becomes more about how much weight we place in that metric um, and how important right. we make it to students I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I place it um, higher than their emotional well-being um, so I, I, while I do see some academic loss I do see some I guess what uh, you know the state might consider academic loss and a little bit of lag in their development with academia. Um, I, I think that the loss that they had with socialization and uh, just kind of the anxiety they had to sit with for months is uh, should absolutely be more at the forefront of, of the yeah. you know academic educational conversation right now.
1: Yeah I mean I think it's actually giving more like if you could foster that conversation, I actually think it's giving more credence to like this idea of we should be doing, we should have been doing that all along, but people have been kind of falling through the cracks just because of MCAS and like these certain metrics that performance metrics that schools want to see and kind of funding and things of that um, knowledge. And I want to I want to come back back to that. I just realized we started the podcast off like super heavy and <laughs> just like yeah man <laughs> academic loss and all this shit and you know so i want to i want to get talk a little bit about your journey because this podcast is the reason why i put it together and invite guests on is because i think it's so important to hear people's stories people's journeys and where how they've overcome trials and tribulations and kind of found a path that speaks to them and i really liked how you introduced yourself primarily as an educator but a, practitioner of Dharma too. And so obviously those two things really mean a lot to you. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got here or got to those two pathways and, and what kind of transformed your life towards that, I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I, I tend to think as I get older, that they might have, uh, almost been like destined to intertwine at some point. Um, but yeah, the, my, my role in education, um, I've actually been thinking a lot more about lately. Because uh, theoretically speaking, someone like me should have ran away from returning to something like this ever again. My experience with education after um, elementary school was pretty traumatic, I think. Um, I I wanna say that the last time I had enjoyed school as a child was seventh grade. Um, I remember going to uh, middle school in Holyoke with my best friend, and uh, we had a relatively normal experience. You know, we'd wake up in the morning super early and watch Rocco's Modern Life and then walk to school together and talk about it and kind of get into the same old normal trouble that kids would get into in school, but nothing um, drastic um And i I would say that before that i I had a, a really difficult time with school because of the lack of support in my my home of my biological family. Uh, just kind of came from a really um unstable house, and uh you know very violent, filled with uh, you know a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger so um it was it, it was kind of destined to eventually kind of seep into my schooling um so my my schooling up until seventh grade i feel like it kind of stabilized from fifth to seventh and then after that it took a very sharp kind of dark turn because um i was moved from holyoke to palmer because the uh state had found out that i had uh traveled to um i believe it was puerto rico with my biological family um in my i was mother's care but she wasn't allowed to take me out of state they found out that she took me out of state and they removed me from the house Uh, they put me in Palmer which uh, was my first experience with racism Uh, yeah up until that point I didn't know what the word uh, spick meant I I had no clue nobody had ever said it to me Um, and I had heard other people use you know the n-word and I knew that was bad Is my 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 neighborhood was very mixed, so I knew right off the bat. Um, you know, my friends would use it freely and call me, even you know if it was in an endearing way. I, I just never used it. I didn't like it. Um, right. So uh, once again, that kind of seeped into my schooling, and, and school became a fight. Like every day, I had to be ready to to fight someone, and it was uh, the first time I kind of experienced this feeling of like I need to protect myself and um, you know it's going to be hard to trust people here. So um, that experience was super traumatic for me. Um, I didn't really realize it was a super traumatic experience until I started making uh, more and more music that sort of revisited those times. Um, and. When I came back from from Palmer and was eventually moved back into my biological home, that same instability was still there. It was still chaotic and more or less, I I was kind of taking care of my own mother and and helping her with her own mental problems. So eventually I just dropped out. I I just kind of knew like, oh, this isn't, this isn't gonna work out for me. Um, And uh, for a while I kind of just meandered through jobs and uh, was, kind of hopeless, I do remember this one time of actually in the moment feeling hopeless, Fe- like actually questioning myself, like what am I gonna do with my life? I, I don't have education, I, I'm, I'm working at a gas station. Um, and luckily at the time I was dating uh, this, this girl who kind of saw something in me academically, noticed that I read a lot, noticed that I had taught myself music and was just kind of scratching her head as to like why don't you do something with this? Like clearly you're you're capable, um, and I kind of had this attitude like eh I might as well see if I can do something with this, um, and after that I feel like it's been nonstop, just like this, um, like almost almost like a um, tunnel vision for education. Like I got a GED right after that I went to. A community college i got an associate's transferred to a state school got a bachelor's degree taught for six years went back got a master's degree um and i think up until recently i was about to go back and get a doctorate but i justify the the debt at this point not going to even out with my pay as a teacher so i think i've incurred enough debt but um uh i i you know, later on, I, I came to realize that that path is very rare it's for someone to come from a GED all the way up to a master's degree. Um, and I didn't really realize that until, you know, months after I had gotten that master's degree It was kind of like the surreal experience to go, Oh yeah, I did that all on a whim. Just somebody told me you'd probably be good at this. And I went and, you know, ended up doing it all based off of a GED. So, yeah. um, filled with some really traumatic and troubling times, but ended on a high note for the most part.
1: That's fucking rad, man. Uh, you know, so first let me say thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I think it's powerful to to hear that and, and kind of see that journey that you went through. I think it also highlights a lot of what we started the podcast off with. Is this idea of like, what is, Acad- like academia, like what, what does it mean, right? Because your experience was so skewed, uh, except for like five to s- fifth to seventh grade, where you, you felt really stable in, in that by external factors and these judgments on what, what it means to. And then someone comes and talks to you and is like, oh, you like to read and you got this musical talent, like, why don't you apply it to something? Yeah. And that shift of like, oh, it doesn't have to be this. Prepackaged packaged idea you can kind of go with it where, where you need to i think that's so so awesome and powerful to hear oh. really cool man like i think i'm a huge believer of different learning styles and different knowledge styles and intelligence and gardeners like theory of multiple intelligences and yeah things of that nature and i think that i think it probably even goes beyond the nine that he came up with, but I think it's a really, really dope way to look at um, education and, and learning in a way that is kind of crazy. I was just talking to someone about this. You know I'm a huge like hip-hop and like comic book fan and how they like merge together, but I was talking to someone the other day, and we were just talking about how the vocabulary I learned from both of those art styles far exceeded what I was reading in ninth grade honors English about Shakespeare, whatever. Right. I mean, listening to Dell the punk beat homo sapien and having to pause and like, what did, what the fuck did he just say? And, and kind of go and read that, or reading a Peter Parker comic, Spider-Man comic and say, what, what does that word mean? What does defenestration mean? Let me look that up. And so I love that your journey wasn't, and it, obviously it was, Full of a lot of strife and a lot of stuff, but I love that it wasn't as lin- linear as people expected. And I think that there's strength and power. So thank you for sharing that.
0: Oh, you're very welcome.
1: Tell me a little bit about the music and how music has informed your life, because I know you, you dabble in a bunch of different styles and a bunch of different things. And I think, you know, we've talked briefly about it, but I, I've seen some of your posts and how different projects you've done musically align with different parts of your life or different times in your life. And there's some that have like grown with you and some that you're like, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. So I'm wondering if you could, well, first tell me about some of the projects you've done. Right. And then how does that kind of blend together?
0: Sure. Um, so I think, uh, growing up I was in a, uh, death metal band in Holyoke with a bunch of my childhood friends and, Mm -hmm. uh, that all started, I you know, I think this actually goes back to my friend, uh, Nate LaPrade, who just handed me a gray little tape one day and said, you should really check out this stuff because I was listening to some kind of, uh, listening to some kind of cheesy new metal at the time. Um, a Puerto Rican kid who grew up listening to like rap and, um, and like reggaeton and stuff like that. <laughs> that was my primary source of music, salsa, reggaeton, hip hop um B, like aaliyah and stuff i'd hear on the radios and then just random 90s pop songs because you know you didn't have to pay for that it was always on the radio so
1: yeah I'd
0: take these you know shitty little cassette tapes and hit record and and go back and memorize the songs and and learn them to myself uh, and, and i remembered early on realizing that i could uh mimic a pitch um and uh had an interest in music but didn't know like what to do with it um my first expression of that was with this uh death metal band in in holyoke where um you know the, the name was in spanish the lyrics were in spanish um everything was sort of like an expression of of my culture and i was lucky enough to have uh two good friends at the time who who were all on board for that um and it made sense too we practiced in downtown holyoke uh you know, uh, at the time, uh, the neighborhood wasn't very fond of listening to a death metal band play outside in the flat. So uh, right. we had everything from people swearing at us to throwing bricks at us sometimes. So it was pretty it, crazy. Um, but that music uh, was my first experience with, I think, I didn't know this consciously at the time, but it was my first experience of uh, releasing what I would consider to be kind of like traumatic energy. Uh, In in the neighborhoods that I grew up in, like violence was usually the only way you got that out. Um, And um, you know, I think, not to deviate too much from the question, but there was my, my, I I think my theory growing up, um, or at least what I had learned as a child was, if somebody has a problem with you in your neighborhood, you need to go find them. address it immediately and if it leads to violence it leads to violence if it doesn't it doesn't um and uh that band was the first time that i felt like oh i can do this and not hurt anyone and not have to get aggressive with anyone i can just do it leave it on this tape that we recorded and then i'm done for the night i don't i don't have to carry that feeling around with me um so that was my first experience where music had sort of like this healing mechanism in my life. Um, so that, that band eventually kind of faded out. And, um, I want to say the next band I took very seriously was this band called Yateveo, um, which again had a very similar, um, setup. It was all in Spanish. Uh, the lyrics were about kind of like these traumatic memories that I had experienced. Um, and I think eventually, there's for me there's a limit or like a life to these projects because um, they almost serve this this uh, role in my life where they're aiding and healing some of those traumatic memories um, and then after a while it's kind of like okay well I don't need to sit with those anymore so I can let those go and let's try to move on to something else um, so that that was more of a like a punk band and most of my friends in Holyoke were punks so. That kind of came natural. Um, and I think the one that I'm probably known for the most is uh, this black metal project called Sangre Tierra, which um, is just all me by myself. And I think it's probably my most uh, intimate thing I've ever done musically. Um, and I think I, I had started that in 2006, uh, just recording on a Tascam four track cassette player. Uh, and I finally ended that in 2016. Um, and that band I got a lot out of. I, I felt like I grew a lot as a person by being able to write those songs and share them with people and um, also kind of connect with my indigenous ancestry. Um, the Afro-Latino side of my family, all of those are kind of um, expressed in a, in a very free way. Um, I would say that the 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 one that is the most uh, kind of like jovial or like fun has definitely been like the the hip hop I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think you know uh, Aaron LaRoche, who I yeah. it's like my partner in crime. Um, making music with him I think has been the most enjoyable thing I've ever done, hands down. Um, with him and um, you know Aaron and the guys I I you know played within the summit, it, that was some of the most fun times I've ever had playing or making music ever um just every single person involved with that project is just uh you know one of the kindest people I've met they're just good natured and um fun to be around and it was the first time where I was making music where I wasn't addressing trauma um or it wasn't my aim sometimes it would come up inadvertently in songs but um, it was very liberating and healing to do music in a way that was not centered on healing a sort of like broken part of myself. Um, yeah, I think that being uh, probably the most enjoyable, uh, currently I'm working on a project with Aaron LaRoche um, called Dawson's Fleek, which is all based- <laughs> It's awesome, I love it. Yeah, it's all inspired by uh, Dawson's Creek and they're all anti-racist, anti-law um, p- enforcement violence kind of inspired songs. So um, we're nearing the end of that and I'm really excited to share that with people. It's the first time I'm having like professional videos done and stuff like that. And the proceeds will go to a um, an organization that we choose that would benefit uh, victims of police violence. Um, and uh, I know Aaron in particular wants to do something specific to Elijah McLean, So I'm hoping that, that that's where um, our first donation will go to. And we're hoping to do this in seasons like the show. So yeah. it consists of 10 songs and um, any shows or um, money that comes from that will immediately go towards um, you know, organizations or causes that we think um, could use some help.
1: That's awesome. I mean, just the pun in the name and like doing it in seasons and like the connection to this speaks to my super geeky heart. I just I just got really excited when you mentioned it. So definitely let, let me know. I'll, I'll definitely share that stuff too. And I'd love to get the word out so we can raise more money on that. I think oh. that's a, yeah, that'd be yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, that actually, so that actually kind of connects me to like the next point I wanted to bring up about, you know, Dharma and, so music seemed to be like a really strong portal for you through traumatic work, but also transformation, right? And, and like the concept, one of the Buddhist concepts of portals of transformation, like related to meditation, trauma, death. And I think the other one, is like tantric sex or something of, of that nature. And, I, you know, I think I think that leads really well into, like we've, we've kind of been on this journey, talked about music. and in education where does where does the dharma in for you that? because it seems like if you're looking at it obsessively from the outside you're like where the fuck is this going, going next right like how do you how do you get the dharma from, from you know what we've been talking about since?
0: sometimes i'm standing in the same position asking the same question cuz yeah. uh sometimes uh you know after a meditation i'm like how did i get here this is <laughs> i did I did not expect to, uh, you know, come close to anything that resembled religion ever. I was always yeah. emphatically opposed to anything like that. Um, I would even say vehemently opposed. Uh, and at one point, um, and, and, I, and I hear that this is pretty common, but I think I had something that resembles what people would refer to as a dark night of the soul,
1: yeah.
0: um, where I kind of had to sit with some feelings that were arising and that i I didn't expect to arise um and oddly enough, it was right around the time my my mother had died um, and at, when I had th- this experience with my mom i I wasn't practicing dharma um, you know uh so my relationship with my mother was incredibly. Violent in a one ended kind of way, you know um, she was incredibly violent towards me growing up due to um, you know, some some issues she had with with mental health. Um, she was a single mom, uh, struggled with it her whole life, I think from roughly till about sixteen until her passing um, and there was a lot of like pain and, and hurt there for sure. Um, And I feel like throughout that pain and hurt, I caught glimpses of what caused her pain and hurt. And um, as time went on, I developed more and more empathy for her life experience. Um, And I wanna say within the last year or two of my life, when she would kind of go through these like crazy rants uh, that were sort of paranoid and delusional, um, I would kind of entertain them early on in life Uh, especially my later teen years I would just kind of be so confused and I think it was also part of my aversion towards religion, she would always make it kind of like this religious, there was always a religious component to it Um, she was Catholic and um, I felt like at one point I understood why she was the way she was and um, that resentment and hurt I had for her instantaneously disappeared, it was just I would, uh, instead of getting upset and walking away and, you know, immediately giving up on conversations with her, I would kind of sit and remind her, hey, right now, like you're on a phone call with me and you're safe and I'm talking to you and I love you. Um, So let's finish this conversation and then we can talk about, you know, the crazy person that you think is following you. Um, So it was kind of like compartmentalizing some of her (coughs) delusions and uh, trying to help her feel safe. When she died, uh, she had, you know, on her deathbed, she's apologizing to me um, for everything she's done, Uh, just kind of coming to terms with, you know, I know I wasn't a good mom to you, I know I hurt you, uh, I really wish I I didn't, and um, it did not take an ounce of effort to forgive her. I I felt like before that I had said, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Well, you know, now is now we don't need to worry about that. But in that moment, I truly forgave her uh, and was able to tell her like, I don't, you know, that doesn't change anything for me or my mom, I love you. Um, For me, it ended up being this beautiful healing moment as sad as it was, knowing that this is probably the last time I'm going to see my mother. Um, But in that moment, I got to forgive her. She got to meet who will likely be my future wife. Um, And I felt like, you know, this is, probably the best way that this could have ended for us um and you know I think a year passed after that and I was sitting with those feelings about my mom and um feeling uh, I think just feeling love for her and feeling like man I'm I really wish she didn't go through the things she went through um and then thinking about losing my dad at an early age. I lost my dad at 12 to uh, a heroin overdose. Last time I saw my father was uh behind uh, a glass pane in a in prison. Uh and after that I did I refused to talk to him and he ended up passing away. So there was a lot of regret there, wishing that I had taken that last, you know, conversation with him. Um and one night I was sitting sitting with those feelings and um wasn't talking to my partner about it. I just kind of Let it sit there. And I just, at at the time, I was working in a juvenile lockup teaching. um, And I had to drop everything. I just couldn't do anything at that moment. I had to leave the job and and think about what was going on through my head, in my heart, for a couple weeks. And um, I remembered this experience in college uh, doing yoga with a uh, clinician that I was working with at the college um, and the meditation that we would do after the yoga and how healing that felt. Um, And I think I just went with the instinct to meditate and um, just felt like so, so much love from that meditation for myself. Um, It almost felt like I was kind of putting a hand on my shoulder and saying it's going to be okay, Marvin. and I haven't looked back since I think meditation became a regular practice. Um and through that meditation I eventually uh began to read the Dhammapada and that sent me down uh the you know the Theravada Buddhist path. Um I don't consider myself to be a great Buddhist. I I consider myself to be very early in that journey. Um, and I am so dedicated to it because I know that my experience has sort of positioned me in a way to, uh, reject that lifestyle and that way of thinking. Um, and I see it as a challenge that I, I meet face to face like every single day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's led to me looking at things more compassionately, um, more patiently and, and trying to make that a part of my everyday life.
1: It's beautiful, man. Like it really is, and you know, I think just you know setting that up in this conversation, it was like, oh, how do you get to there? But I think the the bigger thing is, you don't get there. It, it comes, you know, like it finds you. Like these kind of things find you in in those dark nights of the soul.
0: Yeah, it definitely felt like that. Um, that path in life found me for sure. Um, it felt like it, it clicked immediately once I started to, you know, look at kind of like what is the simplest way I can practice Dharma in my life. Um, and at the forefront, it's it's been with my students always. It's always been reminding myself like, you know, their actions um, are attached to so many experiences that I've never witnessed and will never see or understand. So um, it always... Anytime I find myself in a point of frustration, I go back to that feeling of, well, you know, you're not in their shoes. You you have not experienced what they've experienced in life. Um, And it's led to instant forgiveness for everything from, you know, uh, spilling my coffee and slamming the door out of the room to, you know, calling me a racial slur. Um, I've been able to just go, okay, that was a bad moment. Let's, Let's make some... Some good moments after this one, so um, it, it truly has allowed me to forgive and, and care about my students uh, way deeper than I ever have before
1: yeah, I mean I think it's it's pertinent as it when we started the conversation, just like holding this space and, and kind of really cultivating this emotional and mental health kind of aspect for people during this time, specifically, we were talking about students in school. Um, I think it's one of the hardest things to do, right? Because I think it's really easy to get caught in the, yeah, we haven't lived the same life. We, you know, I don't know where they've been, but I've gone through some shit. So I I, I can kind of look at this and be be like, well, what do you have to worry about? But it's a misnomer, right? Like you miss the action of actually holding that grace and that space and compassion for someone when you start judging it based on your own situations. Because regardless of how your perception is for, for their lifestyle. We know perception is reality for the nervous system, right? for the emotional response. And it doesn't matter if it's been harder or less hard or whatever, it's just holding that space to like, I don't know the road you've walked so I can hold this space if you get through this moment in time without having to create a bigger uh, I lost my kerfuffle. I guess you could use the, a bigger thing out of it, right? Like, um, and I and working with adolescents is it, hard to do. And for sure, spaces, I think it's needed so much, um, just in general. But I think especially now, because for every every kid I've worked with in counseling or through leadership programs or whatever we're running, there's an adult who's saying these kids are, are bullshit. Like they're eating Tide Pods, they're doing all this stuff. Like, oh, uh, the future's lost. And I'm like, yeah. I've done some stupid shit as a, as a teenager and I made it through and they're gonna make it through too. You can't judge it on a moment in
0: time. Oh, for, definitely, man. I, I, I love that you said that because uh, there has been this kind of assumption at times from some administrators that I've worked with in the past, that, where they're like, well, this kid is in foster care He's like, Marvin, Marvin was in foster care and just put him with Marvin. Marvin will be able to connect with him. And I, I think a lot of the times I kind of feel that that pigeonholes me into this expectation of like, well, you both have the same trauma. So, you know, make it work. And it's, I, I always kind of want to be like they're they have an entirely different experience. And um, my trauma need not be in the center of our experience together. So, right. um, I am very careful about what information I share about my own personal life with, with students. Uh, you know, they know I have cats, they know I have a girlfriend, they know I play music. Um, they don't know I rap. They don't know I make beats really. Um, I try to keep that, uh, aspect of my life kind of private. Um, they know I play guitar, they know I like heavy music, but I don't talk to them too much about like, Hey, I was in foster care. I was this, um, I do try to practice that honesty that that I see stems from, you know, that expectation of like honesty from Buddhism, um, where if they directly ask me like, hey, you know, what was this like when you grew up? Uh, I'll say, well, you know, my foster mother and I'll sort of reference that because my foster mother still plays a huge role in my life. I see her, you know, semi regularly and I love her. She, I, she's another mom to me. Like I call her mom. Um, so. I there're certain parts of my life I can't hide because they're implicitly important to me and and naturally a part of my everyday life but I'm very careful about you know talking about like violence I've seen and, and shootings and, and people get stabbed and so I those are things I don't I don't talk about um so I think it's it's super just like you said like this this assumption that you know having a teacher who's been through something similar is sometimes, sometimes it's like putting oil and water together when you have two who have the same exact experience. Um, Be triggering
1: sometimes, I'm sure.
0: There's been moments where I'm working with with a kid and they they get some news that is unfavorable. And it reminds me of me getting news about like not going home from foster care. you know there were there were kids that i worked with in the correctional uh realm that you know would would go to court and come back and just found out they got 15 years and and just mentally shut down and break down um and uh that can be triggered that could kind of remind me of my father being in jail and um you know i had a kid last year talk to me about um a visit getting canceled with with their parents and that student just broke down and i felt like some people couldn't understand why they broke down in the way that they did and i made sure i took that moment with that child to not talk about me losing visits when i was younger but um to try to take their mind off of it and say like you know this is what your clinicians here for but right now you know we're still dismissing we're gonna go play some basketball and and hang out and relax and That kid just shook it off after that. I'm not saying that that's gonna fix it every time, but um, I guess it served as a reminder myself to not, um, not I guess, take charge of addressing that trauma all the time.
1: Yeah, it, it, and it's so well said, because I think it, it's mis, it's a miscommunication on how you, you do the work sometimes. is There's this fear, I think, sometimes as a professional or as someone in certain seat of like doing the work that you always have to have the right answer or you have to like persuade their fears or you have to you know get them through it and i think most of the time these kids these adults these younger kids whoever it is just need someone to kind of sit and co-regulate with you
0: know, oh, for sure. it.
1: And, you know yeah. i think that's exactly what you're doing when i in my old office when i was counseling with a kid who was dysregulated all over the place, like really hyper. I take him outside and, and play um, basketball with him. And we just talk and play basketball. And, and you know, sometimes I would, would drop gems of like, well, you see how, like, you, you tried to force that. And it's more about, you know, I suck at basketball, so <laughs> I'm not gonna win any awards for how awesome I am. But like, just talking about different concepts, but just being there and kind of doing something where on the outside, a parent might look and say, what are you doing? You're just playing basketball. And, you know, sometimes I had to have that conversation. It's like, like, your kid can't sit and talk about stuff. Well, should they always have to sit and talk about stuff? Sometimes you just have to you know, be there and, and kind of process through. Up and just have someone there. And if you want to talk, you can. But
0: yeah. They
1: take the lead sometimes. And I think, I think it's missing in a lot of interaction with kids, especially in school.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think of that, that exact example too that I just gave with that student getting that news after school. Uh, in the moment, I had to kind of check myself because I immediately started to tear up. I, I thought about getting getting news when I was in foster care, you know, 13, 14 years old and not, not getting that visit. Um, everything that goes to your mind of like, do, do my parents, you know, does my mom hate me? Do they not want me back? And um immediately started to tear up and just kind of like all right i gotta get this together let's get this kid through this this moment um Great. yeah it, it really has truly been uh, a humbling experience for sure because it's um shaken the foundation of how i address um people's strife outside of my own um and it i i think in connection to dharma too um dharma has also shifted the way i address conflict I, uh, before I would say up until 2016 or 2017, um, especially with friends, if there was a problem, I had to address it so directly, um, that in my experience, I thought this is totally normal. Like this is, I grew up in the projects. This is how we do it. Um, and I would never factor in that. I'm like this stocky (laughs) Puerto Rican guy that everybody knows comes from this world and, Mm Uh, that that might be received as aggressive and might make someone feel scared or nervous or anxious around me. So it truly has shaped the way that I respond to disagreements and conflict. Um, Even with students, I I, I try to make sure that at the forefront, I'm I'm being as gentle as I can be for as long as I can be. Um, So yeah, I, I noticed a shift in the way it allows me to communicate with students as well as people who I love in my own life.
1: That's awesome, man. So I, I got to ask I got a couple of questions I wanted to kind of run by you and, and kind of see where you stand on them. Obviously one we already addressed with that, you know, loss of in the academic world, but, you know, working within a school system, what are some of the stigmas that you see up, see come up A lot of times just from administrative kind of points of view and you know um, maybe some teachers or other staff and their interactions with kids in general
0: yeah i think um you know their experience coming in as a teacher their own life experience um, i think a lot of teachers kind of struggle with uh, kind of leaving that at the door and taking the day as it comes to you and, and learning about these kids and not sort of like formulating an idea about these kids um you know i'll I'll take an anecdote as simple as this year i I read an iep and i expected this this child to come in and look a certain way and be very oppositional and, and um almost like streetwise and uh the kid you know the young man came in and was so um you know had such a hard time even communicating with me um and there's been moments that i've shared with this kid where um, we're only three weeks in and uh, the first day you know, for one of the mornings that they came in the first thing they do in the morning is walk up to me and put their head on my shoulder and um i almost didn't know what to do like this is a kid who i thought was going to come in and fight me every single day um they ended up being uh you know a kid with a lot of trauma but somebody who was very gentle and um really needing of affection, I think. Needing of praise in, in their life and, and hearing that they do things good, um, which I don't think they heard too much before they, they went into their adoptive family. So I think a lot of people um, go into teaching with these preconceived notions, um, which to some extent is kind of understandable. Like we all have different life experiences. And I think it, it the true mark of a good teacher is how quickly and effectively can you unravel those preconceived notions to do the work that you need to do with the child um and you know are you willing to even unravel those and and open yourself up to these kids and and work with them in a way that um you know doesn't involve stereotyping them or or pigeonholing them into something that they might not be um i think that's definitely one of the, the the bigger issues um especially with administration um just like teachers can kind of um stereotype and put these preconceived notions on students i think administrators do the same thing to teachers Uh, they have an idea of what like what a teacher should look like what they should dress like um even what content they should hold to high esteem Uh, and i think for me, I knew one of my biggest challenges was gonna be the fact that I cannot lie about what I deem to be um, (laughs) useful or um, I guess effective content. Um, That has been a a huge, uh, I think disagreement I've had as a teacher. Sometimes there's like this cognitive dissonance of like, I have to teach this, it's in the frameworks. But I don't agree with this at all. And how do I teach this to them in a way that allows them to, to discern for themselves what they think? How do I right. teach them how to think and not what to think? Um, and that's been a, a huge uh, component to what I do is trying to learn what I what I got out of my writing and rhetoric uh, bachelor's degree and, and really putting that at the forefront of my teaching to, to help uh, students recognize what a logical fallacy is uh, to to attack ideas and and do it in a critical way. Um, uh, something as simple as, well, you know if if you're smart and you want to be a true academic and have people think you're smart, you need to read Shakespeare. Um, and I immediately go, why? why do we need to read Shakespeare? what what makes us so intelligent and held to such a high esteem for learning about Shakespeare. I personally don't want to teach Shakespeare. <laughs> um, so I, I've really kind of, I guess, dug in the crates, so to speak, um, for things that I feel like are overlooked in education. So um, things that come from indigenous cultures, things that come from um, Africa and, you know, non-traditional gems that I consider to be gems. Um, you know, the Shakespeare's of Central America and South America and different places in, in Asia. Um, so I really try to push back against this box that I'm supposed to be in as a teacher. Um, and, I, and I really hope that in the future, if there's one, thing's, uh, one thing that my kids leave with is that you know, my, my teacher taught me to question ideas. He taught me to... Um, not be a conspiracy loon, but to really push back and look at ideas in a critical way and, and to really be able to identify when something just isn't making rhetorical sense. Um, I think what, one of the things I do early on with my kids is we look at logical fallacies and we, we practice naming them and identifying them and, and trying to see where they even come up in our own life. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of like these boxes that we're supposed to be in that I've, I think been bursting out of since I was a student myself. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers, I hope that answers the question. No.
1: Yeah. I mean, a a hundred, I, you know, you just took it to so many amazing places. I mean, I think you're, I, I really like that concept of teaching them how to think and not what to think. And I think that's a really good way to like challenge people's arguments on, you know, education right now, especially with like CRT and all the all this stuff coming up. It's like about learning how to think and expand from out from there and to challenge those logical balances. I think that's awesome. And I, I love how we both have shit on Shakespeare already in the podcast, so I think that's good. Um, we're actually doing a huge fantasy writing group in October where we're going to meet through Zoom and just really do some world building because I'm a huge uh, fantasy guy and love that kind of stuff. And uh, so we're going to do some world building, like create a map, and then each person who, who's participating, they're, they're going to pick a section of the map and just create characters and story arts. And then the hope is we're going to publish it as an anthology, a short story. So I'm really excited to kind of think outside the box on that one. But same thing you know like I didn't read a lot of Shakespeare didn't really speak to me but I I love fantasy right and like different styles of fantasy um, different concepts and then like um, marrying that with different perceptions and you know some of some of the required reading in my high school was fantastic like we read Things Fall Apart which I think is a fantastic book and reflecting back on it now I'm like I grew up on Belchertown, so I was like, what is Belchertown doing reading reading that book? But then, you know, <laughs> the same kind of concept. But that's so good. But then also, I recently I've been reading a lot of fantasy from different cultures and different um, styles. And, you know, um, there's an author, her name is Tony Adyeme, writing uh, Children of Blood and Bone. It's a fantastic series of There's only two books and then. And N.K. Jimison, who, who created this whole um, broken earth trilogy which is fantastic and it's just filled with different perspectives in fantasy writing which historically is a old white male kind of place to be right and so it's 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 awesome to kind of look at these different aspects and have these different things and recommend it and kind of read and do research because there's cultural things that I'm completely unaware of, but are in these fantasy worlds that make the story so fantastic. But they relate to real cultures, and like looking that up. Yeah,
0: that that's incredible. I love that you're doing that. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Thanks. So. I mean, it's it's fun. I think, and I like to write, so I, you know, doing so. We're doing some bibliotherapy kind of concepts. That, uh, cathartic writing, so it should be should be interesting.
0: That's amazing, that's, that's really great work, man. All
1: right, so I got two last questions to how I finish every podcast. I'm gonna hit you with see um, your perspective, owning that I am a geek, and I like superheroes. They're related to that. So you can answer however you want to. I'm gonna hit you with both of them, and you can choose. So the first question is, if you could have any superpower what would it be and why? And then the second is, what is your real
0: life? Wow. That is one I did not expect. That's a really good <laughs> a podcast. Um, if I could have any superpower, honestly, I have probably the worst thalassophobia I've ever come across. I hate deep, dark water more than anything. Um, and I thought that this was only... Uh, restricted to oceans, but apparently any deep, dark water, I'm just not a fan of. I was You're floating fine. on a beautiful Kangama- Kangamangus. I think it's the Sacker River, and you had yeah, yeah, yeah. some deep, dark spots there that just made my bones shake. So I think it would be to just be able to breathe underwater, <laughs> honestly, and uh, feel powerful in, in a place that uh, in real life just brings me so much you know, uncontrollable fear.
1: It's so vast and unknown,
0: and so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I blame
1: Joss for my fear of the water, because...
0: For sure, yeah, that that's definitely the start of it for me. I was always kind of worried about sharks, and then, um, you know, I went to college at UMass Dartmouth uh, for writing, mm-hmm. and uh, the the beach is right there, so it was a common thing that we'd go to, um, but uh, Horse Neck Beach is right next to UMass Dartmouth, and that yeah. beach so turbulent and unpredictable it's Um, crazy
1: my wife's from fall river so when we go visit we go to horse neck all the time
0: i love i love that area i'll never get sick of it um but yeah i do remember this this one like sunset that we were out there just this feeling of dread even just being on the beach and staring out at the ocean and thinking about how big it is and yeah, so being underwater and feeling powerful like that and, and like being able to breathe and, and explore all these new places that I would want to be able to throw some scuba gear on and explore, that would be amazing. I, I think awesome. It would be unmatched for sure, especially since it's like the least explored place in human existence as well. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. I think my, my real life superpower or at least this, this is what I've been told time and time again, and um, I'm starting to think it is true, is, is resilience. I've, I've powered through so much that sometimes I kind of forget how much I've powered through. Um, there are times where I forgot I got a GED, um, and sometimes I sit there and go, wow, you, Like, how did you do this? <laughs> People don't do this typically with a GED. Um, I think actively every day working towards healing trauma, um, you know, doing the therapeutic work with myself, you know, with a, with a clinician myself every week. Um, and, uh, the, the meditation that I do and, and, and the work that I do in Dharma, um, all goes towards trying to heal that so that, um, you know, I can, I can kind of have an active role in, in stopping that generational cycle from, from my own life um, you know I hope to uh, marry the, 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 the woman I'm with now you know we, we, we live together we have cats uh, I'm hoping eventually we'll have children um, and I, I want to be able to have an active role in, in stopping a lot of the traumatic patterns that have happened in my family um, and I feel like uh, you know resilience has definitely been key in that and not giving up and and trying to heal those parts of myself that I thought were impossible to heal. Um, So resilience I think would definitely be uh, the main superpower, maybe the only superpower I have. (laughs) I'm sure there's a couple
1: other ones in there (laughs) somewhere. Yeah, I like making beats. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think a long time ago you made me a beat that was based off of the Jurassic Park theme song. I don't know where it ended up, but. I remember it was really cool.
0: And then I just A lost deep, contact with it. It's like early, like pre Ableton Marvin beats. <laughs> uh, I can find it,
1: man. I, I'll put it as the intro to the, the podcast, like the lead in song, right? I, I think it's on my old computer, so I'm gonna have to check it out. Too. incredible.
0: I saw um, what your your cousin Joe does with Ableton and it completely shifted my ability to make music. I mean, he is just to this day, one of the most talented musicians I've come across one of the most creative. Um, So yeah, his his work and seeing him work in Ableton uh, completely opened me up to all these new experiences. I think I credit the way I can make music now vastly, I think to him, honestly. So yeah, that's so crazy that you have that beat. If you do have it, I would love to. Yeah,
1: I'll have to search. I have like my old uh, MacBook Pro from my 2006 here, which is just enough that if I have
0: it in my files, I can go through it, but I don't know if I I have it still. I'd love to do that time traveling. That's a Fruity Loops beat, man, that is.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'll check it out, man. Well, you know, Martin, I'm so honored that you came on. I had a really good time uh, checking in with you and kind of talking about this stuff. I think it needs to be heard. I think there's a lot of stigma around just everything we talked about today. And I I love that you're doing the work within the system and, you know, plowing ahead and
0: keeping that space. I typically don't share like this very often, but you, um, I love the work that you do and you make it so easy to share with you. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, I was hesitant to share and then I saw Angelica's podcast and it yeah. was truly mm-hmm. inspiring to be able to see someone open up like that. Um, She's and, right. you know, having it be someone you respect so much, I think it, it just kind of took that fear away from me, so. Thank you for all that you do and thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean If you want to learn more about the Promethean project, or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the Promethean If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends like our posts on social media on Instagram and on Facebook, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen, and remember that the most important step is always the next one.